Thank you, dear brother. It's good to be back. It's good to see all of you again. I missed you. Jeremiah 16, and we're going to be in verses 19 through 21 this morning. And this is what it says. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Thank you very much for coming this morning. As you're being seated, please bow with me in prayer. Lord, I'm so thankful to be here, and I'm thankful for every soul that you've brought here this morning. Lord, I know that you have a word for each one of us this morning. Why do I know that? Because we're going to hear from your word, and it's through your word that you speak to us. And I know that your Holy Spirit wants to not only draw sinners to be saved, but also to build up the saints. So Lord, I pray that you would please be working in us to do those things this morning. Please, Father, help us also to walk in obedience to the Word of God and help us to, of course, want to walk in obedience to the Word of God and continue to bend our wills to be more like that of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in His perfect name. Amen. Well, years ago, when I was working for King Acura in Hoover, the owner had the showroom remodeled, and it took months to do, but wow, it turned out really nice. The tiles on the floor covered the entire showroom, were polished, the ceilings were all very high, the lights were all modern, our individual offices that we worked in, the walls were all glass. And all the office chairs throughout the whole place were all white leather chairs. It was too nice. As a former missionary, I felt very out of place because <laughs> we were, had to be so frugal in, in all our spending. And then to go to a place where he was not concerned about being frugal at all because he didn't have to be. So Mr. King really made the place very nice. Uh, sometimes the customers... Also felt a little out of place, too, because a lot of the customers were used to the former layout of the old showroom, and so it wasn't totally uncommon to sometimes find a customer kind of wandering and looking around and maybe not used to where the new amenities were and things like that. Well, the general manager's office was also on the same floor as ours, offices in the, in the showroom. His, his office was there as well. Um, but it was more back in a corner down a hallway in one of the edges of the showroom. It wasn't just easy to find necessarily as, as our offices were. So all of us salesmen, we knew that it's kind of one of our responsibilities to keep customers from just wandering in the general manager's office. You, just, you don't just go into Reed Lyle's office unless you've got a really good reason to be there. It's kind of like King Xerxes 
in the book of Esther. You don't just go into his presence just because you feel like it. You really need to be almost invited. And so since his office didn't have any sort of barrier or keeping customers from just walking into it, like ours were able to just be walked into, we, we knew we, we sort of need to keep people in this part of the showroom and, and not in Mr. Lyle's office. Well, being a, a somewhat new employee, I knew I wanted to honor his privacy and his office space. I wanted to make the general manager happy. So one day when a lady that I didn't recognize was wandering close to our offices and kind of looking around, kind of looking like she was a little new to the terrain as, as well, getting a little bit closer to Reed's office than maybe customers were supposed to be, I asked, um, hi there, can I, can I help you? And she said, um, I'm looking for Reed Lyle's office. Well, I knew it was my turn to be that proper barrier. And so I said, is he expecting you? To which she replied, uh, yes, that he, he was expecting her. And then that's when she told me her name. I'm Mrs. Lyles. I'm his wife. <laughs> well, at that point, my eyes widened, and I said something to the effect of, uh, oh, I apologize, I didn't realize I was speaking to the first lady. You know, I just trying to lighten the mood a little bit there because you can tell when someone's sort of trying to be a barrier, right? Kind of I was nice about it, of course, but... Well, as my eyes widened, it was because I realized two things at that moment. Once she revealed her name to me, I realized who she really was, and then number two, I realized who I really was in relation to her. <laughs> We both had a good laugh as I showed her the way to Mr. Lyle's office. But it was only when I learned her name that I really understood the situation. Her name revealed to me that she was more important than I had originally thought that she was, right? And that she had full rights to really anywhere she wanted to go in the dealership. I've titled the message this morning... Have you forgotten? Because there's a lot in a name. There's a lot that a name can reveal. And you probably picked up on our text where it says at the end that I will make them know my power and my might and they shall know that my name is the Lord. There's a lot in a name and that's especially true of God as well. They had forgotten what his name meant. Some of them may have even actually forgotten his name. That's how little exposure they were having to the word of God in that day. And you might think, well, but they were Jews. Surely, surely they were exposing themselves to the word of God daily, if not weekly. Well, wouldn't you also think that about Baptists, maybe, in our day? Surely, surely they're exposing themselves to the Word of God daily, if not weekly. That's not always the case, though, is it? And so, there's a lot in a name. And I want to talk about that. That's really the main focus, I believe, of this passage here, these three verses. Now, what came before these three verses was another one of those gems that we find in the prophets from time to time. 
God said to Jeremiah, because remember, he's been pronouncing a lot of a judgment on his people, and rightly so, they deserve to be judged because they were willingly, blatantly, foolishly, rebelliously walking in disobedience to the word of God. And so nothing's going to come upon them that shouldn't come upon them. They deserve it, especially how patient God had been with them. And so we find one of those gems where God says, I'm going to restore them. I'm going to restore them. I'm going to bring them back after this. But then right after that, he says, but I'm going to send fishermen. And they're going to fish them and catch them. They're going to fish for them and catch them. And I'm going to send hunters, and we're going to hunt them down like prey. And he's talking about the Babylonians who were coming to invade them. And then that's where we get our verses. That's when Jeremiah says in verse 19, look at the text here. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. See, this is what those who love the Lord, who are committed to the Lord, who are putting their faith and hope in the word of God alone. This is what they can expect. Even upon hearing judgment pronounced upon the world, judgment pronounced for sin, they know that because they're resting their hope in God, that he's their refuge and he's their strength. You find this theme throughout the Psalms so many times, and that's one reason why we love the Psalms so much. They can be so comforting to the Christian. He knows that on the day of trouble, which is coming, because God's truthful, that he'll be safe in God But he's not just talking now about the Jews anymore, because watch this in the rest of verse 19. To you shall the nations come. If you're reading the King James or even the New King James, you see that your translation says here, not just nations, it says Gentiles. To you the Gentiles come, because that's who it's referring to. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, basically. What's a Gentile, Cohen? Anybody who's not a Jew. (laughs) That's a Gentile. And he's saying that the Gentiles will come. Where are they going to come from? From the ends of the earth. What are they going to say? They're going to say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies. Worthless things in which there is no profit. What's this? What are these lies that they inherited? Well, verse 20 tells us, Can a man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. That's what he's talking about. They're going to come to the Lord, and they're going to say, We only got lies from our fathers. They didn't pass down truth to us. They passed down lies. They passed down idol worship, which is the context of a lot of this book. That's how far the Jewish people who serve the invisible God had drifted. Now they were worshiping the idols of the nations around them. And they're worthless. There's no profit in them. I don't need to rehash old sermons about idols because we've talked about this in length, but we will put worth in idols sometimes. We think there's profit in things that are not gods at all, and that's exactly what they were doing. And the answer is, no, they can't make gods. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Listen to what John Calvin had to say about that. Here, let us first learn that it was wholly a diabolical madness when men dared to devise for themselves a God. For had they regarded their own beginning and their own end, meaning that 
They live and die. Man knows that about himself. Doubtless, they could not have betrayed so much presumption and audacity as to invent a God for themselves. How does it happen that men proceed to such a madness as to divide gods for themselves according to their own fancies, except that they know not themselves? It is then no wonder that men are blind in seeking God when they do not consider nor examine themselves. It hence follows that God cannot be rightly worshipped except men are made humble. And humility is the best preparation for faith that there may be a submission to the word of God. See, man will not submit to the word of God unless he first understands who he truly really is and then secondly, until he truly understands who God is. That's exactly it. And so, here are people making gods. Why? Because they actually don't understand themselves. They don't understand how feeble and fickle and fragile and fleeting their lives really are. They have the audacity to actually carve something out of stone and then say, I'm going to worship this thing. It represents something bigger than me. Surely it does. And I'm going to give my time, attention, devotion, prayers to it. This thing I made. You hear the foolishness of that? This thing I made. And we say, that is foolish, Cohen. These people are total dummies. I agree. And so are we when we give our time devotion, attention, and prayers to anything that's not the Lord, right? Cohen is certainly foolish when he does it. Certainly foolish. And thank the Lord, because I have the Lord, he corrects me and prevents me from going any farther in those foolish appetites. When I come to the Word of God and remember who I am and remember who he is, And so, like he said here, humility is the best preparation for faith. That's so true, and that's why they need to know who God's name is. Look at verse 21 now. Therefore, behold, I will make them know, this once I will make them know, my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. If you're looking in your Bible right now, or even if you're looking on the screen, we have it on the screen. Do you see that word Lord there? Do you see how it's all capitals? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You know, that's the divine name, Yahweh. Well, where was that first revealed? It was first revealed in Exodus chapter 3. Hold your spot there in Jeremiah and turn to Exodus 3. I will not have a, um, a slide for this one. Exodus chapter 3. realize how many of us have devices when I hear so few of these little thin pages flipping. (laughs) Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Let's look at this very familiar passage where the Lord first reveals that name Yahweh to us. You might say, well, Cohen, if I'm reading in the Bible prior to Exodus 3, and I see Lord in all capitals. Yes, that's because Moses wasn't keeping a journal of these things as they were happening. He, He wrote these books 
later on in life. And so we see the divine name Yahweh being used even before the burning bush event. But the burning bush event is where the name Yahweh was first revealed to man. And it was to Moses, a specific man. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Exodus. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's also Mount Sinai. It's also called Mount Horeb from time to time. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. That's a whole other sermon in itself. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him. Whole other sermon, worthy of being preached one day, not today. God calls to him, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now look at verse 13. Let's skip a little bit because basically he tells him, hey, I'm going to deliver my people. I've heard their cries. I know what they're going through. I'm going to bring them out of Egypt, out of slavery. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Then God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord See that, all caps? That's where you first find the name. That's where the Yahweh was first revealed. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob that sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered through all generations. Now, you might be wondering, you've probably wondered this at times, because we say this is where the divine name was given. You say, yes, but he says, I am, and then we get Lord and you're saying, Lord's Yahweh, how do I get from I am to Yahweh? Ever wondered that? How we make that? When God says to him, say to them, this is my name, I am who I am, that's the Hebrew word, ehyeh. Okay? I am means ehyeh. Ehyeh, actually, if you translate it literally, it means I will be. You say, well, how do we get I am from I will be? I don't remember much from English class, but I do know I am is present and I will be is future. I at least remember that, Cohen. So how do we get I am from I will be? Well, the idea is this, and I put it in a slide for you as well. It's like that the idea, it, what it conveys is this. God is the one who is and who will be. That's what he's communicating. I will be because I am and I've always been. And that's why I will be. Because I simply am. I have no beginning. I have no end. No one made me. I'm a self-existent God. I am. 
Now, it would be a little bit strange for Moses to go to the people at that point and say, um, I will be has sent me to you. So that's why in the very next verse, verse 15, that's why he says this in verse 15. Look in Exodus 3 again. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. That word is the word Yahweh. Earlier we had Ehyeh, I will be. Yahweh is he will be. That's why he says, okay, so because it would sound a little bit strange for him to say, I will be, I will be. So that's why he changed it to he will be. Instead of Ehye, Yahweh, which we say Yahweh. This is where we first get this divine name. And Moses even had to be taught from the very beginning how to relate to this God. He walks up to the burning bush and God says, hey, you need to realize something. Because I'm here right now, because I've made my presence manifest in this place, at this burning bush, this ground has been changed. And so you need to change your behavior to this ground. You actually have to take your shoes off because this is now holy. Because I've made it holy. Because I'm here. See, Moses even had to be taught from the very beginning, this is how you relate to me. You didn't realize who you were talking to. Just like I didn't realize I was talking to Mrs. Lyles. <laughs> everything changed from that point. Oh, yes, Mrs. Lyles. Oh, you have, you have full rights to everything here. I didn't realize that you're actually above me, as it were. Moses didn't realize it either. And this name represents that, represents this God, has full rights to Moses. And where he lands where he makes himself known he changes everything he even turns dirt holy this is good news for us right good news for us because we're exalted dirt well you women are an exalted rib but us men are exalted dirt (laughs) and God can make us holy and he does make us holy because he makes us his children isn't that good news this is why we can't forget his name And in revealing this name to Egypt, to Pharaoh, it was to reveal his power. This name is also meant to humble men because God will humble men with this name. Here's some examples. When God reveals something wonderful about himself and then connects it to Yahweh. Psalm 83 Verses 13 through 18. I have a slide for you there. Psalm 83, verses 13 through 18. Look at this. This is concerning the enemies of God and God's people. That's the context. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fires consume the forest, as the flames set the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. These are the enemies of God trying to get God's people. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. Look at this. That they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. There's a connection between knowing that name and knowing how powerful he is. 
and the ability for God to humble men, even as they think they're so powerful, they're so mighty, they're so full of pride in what they believe they can do. He's saying, make them know that your name's the Lord. Show them who you are. Next, back to Exodus. Exodus 15, verses 1 through 3. This is after Pharaoh, his army, and their chariots were destroyed in the sea. This is what the people of Israel sing. You might remember the ladies brought out the tambourines. Miriam, Moses' sister, they start singing. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. You see the connection again between God's power because God just split a sea open. A wind blew on it all night long and slowly, slowly split it apart all night long. I know in the Prince of Egypt movie, he stabs his staff down in it and it just splits open in about three seconds. That would be cool, but that's not the way God did it. <laughs> if you actually read it, it says an east wind blew overnight and slowly, slowly split it apart overnight. Then the people went through. Still amazing. Still a sea splitting apart. Well, it didn't come back together overnight. It came back together in an instant when Pharaoh and his armies were right in the middle of it, pursuing it right after the last Jewish man or woman got his foot out of the way. God slammed it down on his enemies. And they say here, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name because he did this. Yahweh is his name because he humbled the enemies of God. He showed them who he really was. There's a connection between the Lord and his power and his might. Amos 5. Amos was a prophet. We call him a minor prophet. Not because he was less significant, but just because his book was small. <laughs> That's the difference between the major and the minor prophets. A long book or a short book. That's the only thing. Their messages were all equally wonderful because they were all the mouthpiece of God. Amos chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he's prophesying to the northern um, tribes who were carried away by the Assyrians for their wickedness as well. But in all that, he has this to say in verses 8 and 9. He who made Pleiades and Orion, these are star constellations. They had names long ago. Um, so he who made the stars and turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night, who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord, Yahweh is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong. See, there it is again. So that destruction comes upon the fortress. Again and again and again, we get a connection between Yahweh's name, humbling the proud, humbling the wicked. Humbling those who think they're mighty. Humbling those who think they can go against God's will. And so knowing and understanding the God of this name, Yahweh, 
is supposed to humble men. It's supposed to make men know that God is powerful. God is almighty. God is all-knowing. God is all-wise. He is creator. He is supreme. He is sovereign. He is holy. He is just. He is good. And he simply is because he's the great I am. That's what this name is supposed to bring to the table for all of us. Since he alone is the one who is, nothing else can ever be without him. Israel had forgotten. Israel had forgotten this. That's why they went after other gods. That's why they turned away from his ways. That's why they turned away from his word, because they had forgotten the God of the word. They had forgotten the majesty, the excellence, the glory of the one who always is and who always will be. And Jeremiah prophesies that the nations, the unsaved Gentiles, will come to know the majesty and the excellency and the glory of the one who is and always will be. That's good news for us, because more than likely, you're a Gentile, not a Jew. And so this is great news, that God has always wanted his message to go out to anyone and everyone who would turn from their sins and wickedness and come to him by faith and believe that what he says is true and believe and know and trust in this name, Yahweh, be humbled in who they are and recognize their right position between themselves and God, not to try to create a God after their own liking, because that's what we do. That's what we do. We create a God we're more comfortable with. But the Jews and their rebellion and foolishness had followed their own sinful hearts, which we're going to see more about next week. They had left him and began to look elsewhere for a God they liked better. A God who would let them live in accordance with their sinful lusts and passions. Many a man in our days like this, like I said, many a person has had parents or loved ones who took them to church, shared the truth with them uh, from, in one way or another, told them about who God is in the scriptures. Maybe weren't perfect examples, I get that. <laughs> we don't have anyone on earth that's a perfect example of righteousness except the man, Jesus Christ. But we've had many, I believe, in our lives show us truth and live lives that we can say are godly. And then just like myself when I was a foolish teenager, go off, forsake all that, create a God in my own mind that I was more comfortable with, just like the Jews did, a God who would let me live according to my sinful passions, because who likes to lay his head down at the end of the night with a guilty conscience? I didn't. You know how to fix that? Create a God who's okay with your sin, then you don't have to feel guilty about it. That God who will let you into heaven just because he's just warm and fuzzy and he just wants you to sit in his lap. God is warm and he is kind. He is. But not to those who willfully reject the truth and willfully make idols in their own minds that are more comfortable with. That's ignoring him and his goodness. We tend to create a God who's less personal as well. 
We don't like the idea of having to answer for our actions to a personal being. That's a little more uncomfortable. Many of us don't like confrontation at all. I know that. Okay? People avoid confrontation sometimes at all costs. I don't mean confrontation like, hey, I don't like you. I'm going to punch you in the, in the lip. Not that kind of confrontation. I mean just even having to go to someone with some type of disagreement and talk about it like adults. That doesn't happen very often either, unfortunately. But we don't like this idea of a personal God, at least not one who's perfectly holy and pure and righteous and just. That's why instead of asking people if they believe in the Lord God of the Bible, sometimes people ask the question, and you've heard this question, you've heard it on TV perhaps, people ask the question, do you believe in a higher, what? Yeah, a higher power or a higher being, right? Do you believe in a higher power? Very generalized, not personal. But that's not the God of Scripture. He said, I will be He will be. He's personal. He uses pronouns, male pronouns that don't change. (laughs) He is who he is and always will be. Idols are impersonal. In God's name, he will be, which takes the place of I am. He's personal. Israel had forsaken this personal, self-revealed God for impersonal man-made idols. They had forgotten who God was. And I'm preaching this because I don't want you to forget who God is. Have I forgotten who God is? Have I forgotten what what he's like? Have I forgotten what what he requires? Have I forgotten also what he's done for me in Jesus Christ? Because you know Jesus Christ is the God-man who came to this earth and lived a perfect life not breaking any of those laws that we've broken. And he showed us the way to the Father, taught truth. Every time he opened his mouth, it was pure scripture happening from his lips. And he showed us the way, and not only that, he provided the way by taking the punishment that we deserve. He didn't deserve it. It fell upon him. God's wrath fell upon him in full, and it really had no business falling there. But he chose it. He chose to take the punishment for sinners and die in our place and shed his blood and be buried. But really, truly, rise again from the dead, showing that he is the God in power, in might, and can do what he says he does when he says, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down to my own accord. And if I lay it down to my own accord, I have power to raise it up again, showing that every word of his is true and also showing that he's our savior who ever lives to make intercession for the saints. We, however, have to humble ourselves under God's truth and say, what your word says about me is true. I am a sinner. I have broken your laws. I do know that I need the one Savior that you've provided. I recognize that, and I recognize my position. I'm created. You're creator. I'm creature, and you're not created at all. You're self-existent. I'm dependent and I know that I need you, and I know that I was made to worship you. That attitude, that's what God's looking for, a repentant, humble heart. Remember, it was the publican, the tax collector, not the Pharisee who went to his house justified, the man who said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Jesus said, that man went to his house justified. Not the man who said, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I mean, especially not like this loser over here. Not that attitude. God's looking for those who humbly understand who he is by understanding what his name means. Because the truth is, as Christians, every time we sin, we forget who God is. Did you realize that? Every time you sin, think about this. And I'm going to end on this truth. Every time we sin, we forget who God is. We forget one of four things. We forget either his will, his word, his ways, or his wonder. Because when we sin, we follow our will. We believe our word. We trust our ways. Or we chase after what our sinful heart finds as wonderful. I mean, really. When I sin, I'm saying, I believe what I will at this point is better than what God wills. I believe that his word right now could be wrong about this or maybe isn't as serious about this as he says it is. I believe his ways, his character in the scriptures are not necessarily to be perfectly followed all the time maybe because I do want this thing. And he says, if I look at his character, his his ways, they don't condone this. And also, when we look at something that we want more than God, we see that thing as more wonderful than God. We stop looking at how wonderful he is, how much wonder he has, and we say, let me divert my eyes over to this. Oh, that looks like that would give me some temporary satisfaction that I've found for the last thousand times only leaves me with guilt and shame after I do it. But maybe this time's different. <laughs> I'm not, am I alone in this? Please say I'm not. Uh, prayed 9,999 times for the same struggles. But there's grace for those who repent and turn, right? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you, know I want, do you know why I want to confess those sins? Do you know why I do feel guilty and shameful when I fall into sin? Because his Holy Spirit is within me, convicting me of those things. When I was old, Cohen, not saved yet, I didn't care. I looked for opportunities to do it more. If you're under the guilt and weight of your sin, that's a good sign. The Lord's drawing you saying, repent, turn from that. That's not my will for you. So if you're here this morning under, the, under some guilt and weight, be encouraged. God's calling you. He's calling you, saying, I'll forgive you. Jesus already took the punishment for that sin. Confess it. Repent of it. I'm gracious to sinners who come to me in repentance. It's the proud that I'll show my power to. It's the proud that I'll humble. So Christians, every time we sin, it's because we've forgotten his will, his word, his ways, or his wonder. See, non-Christians don't sin because they've forgotten who God is. They sin because it's their nature, and they've never known who God is. They don't know his will. They don't love his word. They don't care about his ways, and they certainly don't see his wonder. 
God has to reveal that to him. God has to open their eyes. You need to understand that God's name is vital for you to understand. You need to understand that God's name is vital for you to understand. His name is connected to who he is. He is who the scripture proclaims him to be. He reveals himself to us in the scriptures. This old Bible, my mom and dad gave it to me. In 2001, let me find the page where they, where they wrote that on the front. It says, to Cohen Ezel, by mom and old dad, that's what my dad calls himself, old dad, April 22nd, 2001. This Bible has been with me into three different countries and multiple states. I even still have the pictures of my first class that I taught when we were missionaries. I took pictures of all my students, put their birthdays on there, prayed for them by name. Why am I bringing this up? My dad wrote a note in this book when he gave it to me. Through this book, God reveals himself. Through this book, God reveals himself. The good news for you is this. Have you forgotten who God is? Have you forgotten what that name means? I have good news for you. Through this book, God reveals himself to you once again. Get back up. Keep going. We're all together in this, okay? I'm here to encourage you. God wants to talk to you again. Keep reading. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful truth. Help us not forget who you are and what your name means. Keep us from falling into the ways of the Jews during the time of Jeremiah. Keep us from looking to our will, our word, our ways, and going after what our heart finds as wonderful while forsaking you. Don't let us do that. I pray, Lord, give us grace to be in your word. Give us grace to live what we see. Give us grace to love what we find there, Lord. The God of this book. That's why we call it the word of God. We love you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.